What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Founders Journal. I'm Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. I spoke to a founder recently who did something absolutely insane. Here's the story. He raised a $15 million Series A at a $350 million valuation for his personalized AI company called Rewind. But that is not the crazy part. The crazy part is that he raised this round publicly on social media by putting his deck on Twitter, which led to 170 offers for investment, ranging from a $200 million valuation to a billion dollar valuation. So I thought it was time to talk to the man himself, Dan Soroker. Dan is a serial entrepreneur who is currently the co-founder and CEO of Rewind, and prior to that, he was the co-founder and CEO of Optimizely, a $500 million MarTech business that is doing over $110 million in revenue. In addition to asking him about his highly unconventional approach to raising capital this time around, and also if it makes sense for other founders to do, I also asked Dan for his timeless principles for fundraising based on his experience raising a shit ton of money. Let's hop into it. Dan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about your raise for Rewind because it was relatively unconventional. And I think there's a lot of wisdom that can be taken from not only the process you went through, but also your lessons that led to your process. So can you first just talk about how you raised your Series A for Rewind? We did something pretty unconventional. So we actually put our pitch deck out on Twitter, now X, uh, and uh, it came out of this realization that the best way to build trust with our customers was to be as transparent as possible. We were getting questions like, well, I love the product, but what happens if you get you know, bought by big tech or if you go out of business? And so we thought, let's show people we have a real business, we're doing well, we got plenty of runway. And uh, so that was kind of reason number one. Reason number two is it was, you know, we, it was just the beginning of sort of this AI hype cycle and a lot of people were interested in meeting and we had plenty of runway, so I didn't really want to meet with a bunch of investors. So I thought, all right, let's just put the deck out there. Let's be fully transparent. Uh, we didn't particularly worry too much about competition at the time. Um, and so that's what we did. We put seven minutes out there. You can go find it. It's uh, our Series A deck. We didn't redact anything. Uh, we didn't hide anything. We showed the full roadmap. And it totally went viral. We got uh, well over, uh, you know, we got millions of views, uh, over a thousand offers to invest, many from really great investors. And I, I spent the next week in meetings with folks. The nice thing about this, you put it out once and everyone sees it's there. So there's a, the clock starts ticking for them. They know they'll lose out the deal. So the most enthusiastic investors I met with in person, I had maybe 60 meetings back to back the following week. And then for the finalists, I really did my homework. I went in, talked to references, ultimately ended up choosing NEA, which is a great alignment of values with what I was looking for, somebody with a long-term orientation. NEA is known to have 15-year fund life cycles as opposed to the traditional 10. Very often they're buyers at the IPO, they're not sellers. So, And, and the team was fantastic. So that was really um, the outcome of the process, but it, would, it started by casting a really wide net and it worked out great. We raised it a $350 million valuation with 700K uh, in uh, ARR. So uh, you know, that was a you know, wonderful outcome and we're really, really happy we did it that way. It seems like one of the things you did in this process beyond just being super transparent and just almost allowing the internet to work for you to generate demand and also trust in your business, because it seems like that was a big thing for you as well, was people having trust 
it, not only just in your product um, and the technology, but also that the business would be around for a while, is the emphasis you put on spending time with investors and really inve- uh, vetting investors and picking the right ones. Can you share um, what were the most important criteria that you filtered for in choosing your investors and any questions that you asked to try to get responses that help you understand if an investor was right for you? It changed. It has changed for me over my career. I think early on, uh, when I was younger and I had my first startup, I really wanted more mentorship and guidance. And uh, you know, that's why we raised uh, my last company, my Series A, we raised from Benchmark, which has this philosophy of really being involved and helpful. Um, and uh, not that I don't want investors to be helpful, but I also think I'm now more mature. I kind of have a better sense of. Uh, where the company needs to go. And so I wanted an investor that first and foremost was aligned in values. You know, they were investing in me and they put a lot of trust in me. They're not trying to uh, replace me. They're not trying to, you know, um, exploit kind of the dynamic today. They see more of the value of the company being created in the future than the value been created so far. So that was first and foremost what I wanted, which is like sort of that values alignment, long-term orientation, commitment to building a big successful company over the long-term. And that's where references really actually play a huge role. You know, talking to somebody um, is one thing. You can ask, and investors are very good at selling. So you should be careful. There's, there's very few questions you can ask an investor uh, that you're going to get to the core truth uh, compared to talking to their references. And, and certainly talking to back channel references are, are very, very important. I think founders will be really honest with other founders. So don't be afraid to, you know, you're thinking about taking a term sheet from an investor. Look at, you know, all the other people they're on the board with and just reach out to the CEOs of those companies. They'll respond. You know, I've had, I think, 100% hit rate on, on reaching out cold and uh, from founder to founder when you're making these big decisions are the kinds of conversations that can really shape uh, whether you get the right investor or not. And out of curiosity, when you were doing these back channel references, what would you ask other founders uh, to be able to, to better understand their experience with the investor that you're looking into? Yeah, my most effective question is one that I've actually adapted from, um, for candidates, but it works just as well for, for investors, which is I ask the person who I'm, I'm doing a back channel reference with, I ask them, let's say I take this money from NEA and I tell you in, in six months it didn't work out. What's your first instinct as to why? And uh, and sometimes I'll even frame like, let's say you and I bump into each other in San Francisco, and I turn to you and hey, it just didn't work out. Uh, you know, I make it really real. I tell, I, mean, I want them to feel the consequences of if they give me bad advice, uh, what it might feel like. And usually, when you ask somebody their first instinct and you ask them in this hypothetical, you get to some truth that you might not otherwise get when you ask about strengths and weaknesses. And um, so that's one probably my most effective question is uh, this hypothetical of why wouldn't it work out in six months. Interesting. And just to make sure I understand, you're asking them, why wouldn't the investment have worked out? As in like, why wouldn't your business have worked out? Or what would the investor's reaction be? Usually, well, I ask this mostly of candidates, and that usually implies like we've either fired that candidate or they've quit. I see. So investors, you know, I I don't know if I asked six months, but maybe I asked. Ultimately, it didn't work out. Maybe something like that, where you know, maybe the and and it's it's framed in the sense of like the relationship with the investor. I got it. Or the investor wasn't aligned, and and you'll get answers like, well, you know, maybe it didn't work out because that particular investor you're talking to is really excited about X idea. And maybe you're not, you know, you'll hear things that you might not otherwise hear uh, that you end up uh, you know, exposing through this kind of hypothetical. Super interesting. You've raised over $200 million. You raised a lot for Optimizely. You've, you know, you've raised obviously for Rewind. What are kind of like the most important, maybe non-obvious lessons that you've learned from just having a lot of experience fundraising now that, 
both led you to this unconventional process, but also are lessons that you would share with founders who don't have all the years of fundraising experience you have to maybe increase their odds of being successful in raising money? Yeah, well, I'll start by just saying raising money is not the goal. <laughs> it is a means to the end. Uh, and if it is not the right means for your end, then don't do it. Uh, you know, Especially people in Silicon Valley can get really um, caught up in this sort of, um, you know, you're surrounded by all these other founders raising all these money, great valuations. Like, don't let that put you down a path that's not the best for you. So I would start with what's your end in mind and make sure raising money is first and foremost the right path to that end. Um, I think the second thing I'd say is these relationships may feel like transactions in the moment when you're trying to decide who to take money from or who to talk to, but they're really relationships you'll have for a long time. You know, these are people, if the company does well, you're going to be working with for decades. And so that's something to also recognize is that in the moment when you're a hot deal or things are going quickly, like it may feel really good, but like you're still going to be working with this person one way or the other for quite a while. Um, the third is even if you're a hot company, you're going to get a lot of no's. It's not, you know, it, it is almost by by definition, even the best and most exciting companies and the most successful founders who've, you know, been successful in the past will get investors who, for whatever reason, don't want to invest. And I think accepting that upfront, I, I tell myself that every time uh, is important because just from a, from a mental health, from a perseverance perspective, um, it, you shouldn't let that phase you because there's a hundred reasons I say no. And many of them don't have anything to do with whether you'll be successful or not. Um, the last I think I think is is also important to recognize is that like this is a a business. It's not just like a relationship. You should understand where they're coming from, what their goals are. Um, you know, there's a lot of language out there about founders sort of getting the best they possibly can, and it's sort of like it, it it's this adversarial idea between venture capitalists and founders. But the best deals, the best transactions are ones where you both win. Uh, I think Paul Graham talked about the, the inspiration for the Y Combinator model came out of when he sold ViaWeb. He had this early angel investor who bought you know, 6% of the company. Um, and he he realized, like, actually, that was a win for everyone. Like, ViaWeb really needed that money. Uh, the investor made a lot of money. And, like, that's kind of, you know, you want that kind of alignment where you're all, at the end of the day, going to win if the company succeeds. I love that. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Would you recommend the way that you raise this A to other founders? I would. And I think you should do it the right way. Um, you know, the, framing your fundraise as a community round or putting out there publicly can have this maybe stigma that you're desperate. So you should find a way to do it that doesn't come across as desperate. Um, and I think the best way to think about it is to analogize um, raising the way we did to online dating. Uh, you know, you could go to the local bar and uh, find somebody that you might want to marry. Uh, that's possible. That's kind of how most people raise money. They go to the handful of best firms and they go up and down Sand Hill Road or maybe up and down their Zoom calendar and they end up meeting with a handful of folks. But the reality is the world is big. There's a lot of great investors who might love your product for one way or the other, for one reason or the other, that you may not think to talk to, or maybe uh, you don't get a sense to know until you kind of put yourself out there more publicly. And I think that's really the value of being more public in your fundraise, it helps you cast a wider net, which then you ultimately find the perfect match, the perfect marriage. 
And you end up, I think, um, really getting a sense for your market prices. That's the other thing that you benefit tremendously from is getting lots of offers and, and putting yourself out there. And the last thing I'd say is most people don't do this because of some fear of competition. You know, it's true that since we did raise in public and we were successful, we've had some imitators and some copycats, but none of them really have affected us. You know, it was a little bit of like, oh, should I have been so public about our success when I see all these, you know, imitators and copycats? They've all kind of gone nowhere or they look like they're fizzling out. So I, I would say it's overblown concern around um, competition is probably not worth worrying as much about. Yeah, I love that. And when you think about what you optimize for when you're fundraising, and I may for, be forgetting a few things, but let's just say one is valuation, one is like values alignment, one is let's say like uh, mentorship and actual like um, tangible support from your investor. I may be missing a few others, but how in your head, whether it was as a first time founder or as a second time founder or now a third time founder, like how, what, what did you optimize for in kind of the criteria of selecting investors uh, and how has it changed at, over time, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I think values alignment would be the top of the list for me, but I think that's kind of the, if you think of Basil's hierarchy of needs, that's like the self-actualization. Yeah, You yeah, also yeah. really need some foundations. Like, you need it to be at a fair price. Like, you shouldn't sell your company way higher than it's worth and way less, because both are bad. You need an investor who's going to do no harm. You know, there's a lot of investors out there who will do harm. Like, you shouldn't take money from somebody who ultimately is going to be harmful to the company over the long term. Um, but you know, if you're able to get a good price, if you're able to find somebody who will be helpful, you can't expect them, by the way, to, to, to be the reason you succeed or fail. Like it's just putting too much on them. Like a lot of investors have helpful services and that, and that really does help. But at the end of the day, you are the founder. You're going to be the reason the company succeeds or fails. So you shouldn't have unrealistic expectations for what an investor can do for you. And ideally, if you're lucky, you have those two things, then I think that values alignment is also critical because if you get that right, then so many other things become easier. You know, the next time you need to raise money and maybe the company's not doing as well and you really need that last investor to do their full pro rata, like that values alignment is gonna be really important then. Those are the scenarios where if you're out of alignment on values, maybe the investor or that firm or the partner of that firm is just in a different headspace and focus on different things, you, you end up in these situations where down the road, it's gonna be much harder, even though in the moment it might feel good because they gave you a bigger price up front. Yeah. Super interesting. One last question for you is not only was this Series A unorthodox, but like super successful in this unorthodox approach, but you raised at a crazy valuation, right? You raised at 350 million on, like like you said, 750K, which you look at it as a multiple, it's like 466 times revenue. How do you think about the pros or cons of raising at a multiple that is well higher than where, let's just say, the market is right now? Like, how do you process kind of the trade-offs either way? Yeah, I, I would say it, that's one of the big benefits of raising more publicly, is you get a market price. Like, I have, and I probably should publish this, I have a distribution of from, from you know, from 75 million to a billion, uh, where do people think we're worth? Because I put up this form, you can go to it today and see how I put this form up. And I tell people how much we do want to invest and at what valuation. And then I get a thousand data points of where people think our company is worth. We had 20 offers at a billion dollars or more. Um, but 20 out of a thousand is pretty small. You know, the, the, the foolish thing to do would be to take the money at the billion dollar valuation and set these unrealistic expectations for growth. 
And so we thought, okay, let's, you know, 350 was a lot, but, you know, that was kind of where the market was showing. A lot of people came in around 200, a lot of people at 300, you know, 350 was kind of like, we're, we're starting to realize these are the people really leaning in, believing in the market, believing in where the future is. And that's also important too. You don't want somebody who's just, you know, investing because they think you're a good deal uh, or that you're, you're, they're, you know, the good old Warren Buffett, like cigarette <laughs> button, they get the last puff of a cigarette right before it goes out. You want an investor who's investing because, you know, the, everyone, and we had, by the way, hundreds of investors participate at this $350 million valuation. And when they're doing the math, they're thinking that this is not worth 300. They're doing math to say this is worth multiple billions of dollars. And eventually, you know, there's some non-zero chance this could be as big as Google or Apple. And that's what you want. You are investors who are aligned around that goal because that's my goal. I want to build a big, impactful company. And if that's what they're underwriting it to, then that's not as bad as I think um, venture capitalists like to scare you into thinking, don't take the big valuation because how are you ever going to live up to that? And because the good news is we have six years of runway. We've got plenty of time uh, to, to, uh, to live up to the big valuation. Totally. Yeah, I think to your point, the amount of time you have of runway to basically grow into it is such an important component, as you mentioned. And yeah, it's super interesting. And I really do hope you end up publishing that distribution because it'd be fascinating to look at. Dan, thank you so much for joining Founders Journal and for all of your insights on fundraising. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Founders Journal. If you like this format where I do these kind of celeb shot episodes of having world-class entrepreneurs and investors answer the most important questions or challenges for early stage entrepreneurs, shoot me an email to alex at morningbrew.com to either suggest a future question or challenge that we should talk about that you want answered or a specific expert or entrepreneur that you would love to see come on the podcast. That is alex at morningbrew.com. Shoot me an email. I will absolutely get back to you. As always, thank you for listening listening and I'll catch you next episode. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.